Have you heard some of the great insights from guests on Gangry the Podcast? Insights like... I've never had an editor throw an idea at me to write anything before. I always ask myself with yeah, stories, normally, and, and I, I had the same going question. through Nabokov's archives. It has a question mark in my Imagine head I'm on your shoulder time. and that you're wearing a GoPro. Here is uh, carefully and Every single meticulously. about the whole Bundy story was just so interesting. It was a really weird one to write because every time I tried to write became a viral sensation, right? Like, it was the story. You cannot, you cannot do these stories or how we, uh, how we understand the world. They're how we share our experiences. Believe it or not, Gangry the Podcast is now in its ninth year. In all that time, the best narrative journalists have told us how they report and write their stories. You can still listen to every single episode. They're on our website, along with links to all of the stories and books that we've talked about. You can find it all at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talked with Mike Sielski. Sielski wrote The Rise, Kobe Bryant, and the Pursuit of Immortality. The book was published by St. Martin's Press in January. Sielski is a sports columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. After Bryant's death, he wanted to tell the basketball superstar's origin story. That's a story that takes place mostly in Philadelphia. There's a story here that I think people in this community in the Philadelphia area know really well, but I'm not sure that the people around the whole United States or even the globe know it as well as his story with the Lakers. So I figured, why not try to tell it? Sielski was assisted by a longtime friend. Jeremy Treatman had been an assistant coach and confidant of Bryant's back in Kobe's high school days. At one point, Treatman and Bryant were working on a memoir focused on Kobe's rookie season in the NBA. As a result, Treatman recorded interviews with Bryant on microcassettes during his senior year. That book never happened, and then Treatman lost the cassettes. He found them just before Christmas in 2020 and called Sielski right up. Jeremy took me into his garage and reached into this box and pulled out a giant Ziploc bag full of about 20 micro cassette tapes of interviews that Kobe had done with him when Kobe was 17, 18, 19 years old. And I was able to listen to them, weave them into the narrative of the book, and it was just a gold mine in terms of texture and detail and, and nuance that really was able to you know, flavor the narrative in my writing of the book. The Rise is Sielski's third book. In 2005, he co-wrote How to Be Like Jackie Robinson with Pat Williams. His second book, Fading Echoes, a true story of rivalry and brotherhood from the football field to fields of honor, was published in 2009. Sielski was voted Best Sports Columnist by the Associated Press Sports Editors in 2015. In 2010, his story Dream Derailed was included in Best American Sports Writing. As usual, I've linked to everything we talk about on the website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Mike, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Matt, this is great. Thank you so much for having me. 
Uh, I'd love to talk with you about your new book. It came out uh, a couple weeks ago, I think. Um, the Rise, Kobe Bryant and the Pursuit of Immortality, uh, published by St. Martin's Press. Uh, I mean, I think, it, I mean, Kobe Bryant is in the title, right? So I think it, I know what it's about, but tell, tell, me, uh, tell me about the book. Sure. So uh, what I wanted to do, Matt, in this book was try to write Kobe's origin story. You know, as somebody who grew up um, and has worked in uh, the Philadelphia area virtually my entire life, uh, I was very familiar with Kobe from that perspective, from the perspective of Lower Marion and his place in the Philadelphia basketball community. Um, and I was kind of fascinated by his upbringing. And I thought it was a story that I could tell well, you know, that I did not cover Kobe, you know, thoroughly for his 20 years with the Lakers. I would cover him here and there whenever the Lakers would come into town or a situation dictated. Um, but I knew this story and I knew the people involved in this story. And so the elevator pitch I came up for the book was I wanted to do Batman Begins for the Black Mamba. And uh, kind of if I told I figured if I told the story the right way, somebody could read a book like this and get the full perspective on Kobe's life, the good, the bad, the complex. Why? Why did you want to do this book? Well, he's always fascinated me as a figure. Uh, right. You know, he's. Uh, he has people who love him. He has people who, you know, for various reasons kind of don't like him at all. Um, and we can get into those reasons if you want. Um, but he became such a cultural touchstone. And after his death in January of 2020, I ended up writing a fair amount about him for the Philadelphia Inquirer and my job as a columnist there, wrote about half a dozen columns in the wake of his death. And that kind of triggered it for me. It was like, oh, there, there's a story here that I think people in this community in the Philadelphia area know really well, but I'm not sure that the people around the whole United States or even the globe know it as well as his story with the Lakers. So I figured, why not try to tell it? It would be, I think, incredibly difficult to dig into the mind of someone as famous as Kobe Bryant, just in general, right? Because they typically are or closed off in, in some ways, but you're going back in time, right? To when he was, uh, you know, from, from almost birth to a high schooler who was drafted uh, in the NBA draft. How were you able to do that? Where, where did you get the information that helped you kind of to, 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 to tell that story? Well, like I said, I had contacts um, and relationships with people who knew him back then. I knew Greg Downer, who was his high school coach at Lower Marion, uh, Greg was able to put me in contact with several people. I knew people within the basketball community in the Philadelphia area. Um, in terms of doing the research for the book, I was able to go through clip files and I went to the Lower Marion Historical Society, which had copies of his yearbook and old copies of the student newspaper from Lower Marion High School and things like that. But kind of the real treasure trove was uh, a friend of mine, a guy I've known for 25 years named Jeremy Treatman had been a confidant and friend of Kobe's back when Kobe was in high school. Uh, Jeremy was kind of an assistant coach slash media relations representative for Lower Marion's basketball team during Kobe's senior year. He kind of handled all of Kobe's interviews and got to know him really well and got to know him so well, in fact, that the two of them tried to collaborate on a book back when Kobe was a senior at Lower Marion. They were going to call it My Freshman Year in the NBA. And so Kobe and Jeremy sat down for these series of interviews that Jeremy recorded on a micro cassette recorder. So I reached out to Jeremy uh, to talk to him. He gave me trans 
scripts of some of those recordings. But for the longest time, he told me, you know, I can't find the tapes. I don't know where the tapes are, uh, but here are these transcripts. And they were written in Kobe's voice as if they were a memoir. Fast forward as I'm trucking along with doing the research and the writing of the book to December 22nd, 2020. Jeremy calls me at 8.30 at night. He is in the midst of cleaning out his townhouse in Philadelphia because he's moving to Boca Raton, Florida. And he calls me and he says, Mike, I found the tapes. He was cleaning out his basement. He opened up a box on a shelf and there they were. So the next morning, two days before Christmas, I drove over there, had a mask on against COVID. And Jeremy took me into his garage and reached into this box and pulled out a giant Ziploc bag full of about 20 micro cassette tapes of interviews that Kobe had done with him when Kobe was 17, 18, 19 years old. Not even Jeremy had heard these things in 20 some years. And so he gave them to me and I was able to listen to them, weave them into the narrative of a book, uh, use them to create a podcast called I Am Kobe, where you can actually hear these tapes. Um, and it was just a goldmine in terms of texture and detail and, and nuance that really was able to, you know, flavor the narrative in my writing of the book. That's a hell of a Christmas present. <laughs> sure is, man. <laughs> what, uh, what was it like? Uh, first of all, you get these, these micro cassette tapes in 2020, were you able to play them immediately or did you have to like go on Amazon and order something that would actually pay, play them for you? Cause that's what I would have to do because my old micro cassette recorder has disappeared from the earth. This was the cherry on top of the story, Matt. Not only did Jeremy have the tapes in the Ziploc bag, he had his old micro cassette player. This player was so old that the panel to the battery holder container didn't even exist anymore. You had to tape the batteries into the recorder to keep them in there, but the thing still worked. So I was able to play these micro cassettes, listen to them. I digitized them so that I would have them both for the podcast and for myself. And then I gave the tapes back to Jeremy eventually. Um, but yeah, I was able to listen to them right away. Uh, I had to download some software to be able to digitize them and all that. But uh, it was, it was amazing. It just really was amazing. What was it like? Uh, to listen to them like uh, what, what what was your process um, did you go from beginning were they labeled beginning to end and did you go that route or were you just plugging them in and playing and as you were listening what were you doing uh, you know reporting wise uh, so you could kind of catalog everything yeah they were kind of labeled randomly most of them had Kobe written on them in some form or another but you'd have like Kobe tape 6a and Kobe 3A, and Jeremy didn't remember why he had written what he had written on any of these tapes. Um, so I went through them and kind of cataloged them. Uh, I didn't transcribe everything just because I didn't have time. My manuscript was due in March, and this was the end of December. Um, but I did the best I could uh, in terms of, I, I certainly listened to all of them, and I would catalog them and transcribe things that were particularly interesting or important. So Kobe talking about the first time he had any extended interaction with Michael Jordan before a Sixers-Bulls game in 1996. Kobe talking about why he loved basketball. Kobe describing uh, what it was like to lead Lower Merion to the state championship in 1996. Kobe on meeting Magic Johnson. Kobe on uh, an incident after he ends up with the Lakers where he's at a 4th of July party in Philadelphia and he gets approached by a total stranger who recognizes him and what his reaction to that was. He felt like, oh my gosh, do I need to, you know, somebody could have a gun and pull a gun on me 
I'm not going to go out in public anymore without a bodyguard. All these little moments that if Kobe had still been alive, he and I were interviewing him, he would have had to recall them. I now had them in real time. I had him cursing about Del Harris, his first coach with the Lakers, because he felt like Harris was holding him back and, and didn't want him to be the player he really could be. Um, all these things in the moment, I had them. So to, to answer your question about how I felt, I got chills listening to them. Um, it, it almost sounds inappropriate, but it, I felt like I was hearing his voice from beyond the grave. And as I said, it, it lent a measure of intimacy to the book that I would have had to fake otherwise. I didn't have to fake it. Not that I would, but I didn't have to. I knew what Kobe was thinking in those moments and, and what he thought in those moments. And that's priceless. So you said the tapes you, you got in December, your book was due in March. Like how, how did they transform? Like what I can't even imagine. Cause I I'm imagining in my head that you're pretty close on the book that close to a deadline, at least um, I, maybe I wouldn't be, I would be so far behind. I'm sure. But, um, <laughs> but I'm assuming you were pretty close and then you get that. And now you got to start thinking, okay, well now, now what do I do? Yeah, I had the basic structure of the narrative already in place. So what it allowed me to do was to go back at certain points in that narrative and add more context and brush strokes. So for instance, when Kobe is talking about and any part of the book that dealt with Kobe's recruiting process and his decision to go straight from Lower Marion to the NBA, now I had some more intimate thoughts about that. So for instance, when he gets a letter from Dean Smith at North Carolina, I now know from the tapes because Kobe has said it on those tapes, that he never would have gone to North Carolina because as much as he admired Michael Jordan, he would have felt like he wasn't his own man and wouldn't have had his own identity at North Carolina following in Michael's footsteps. So I didn't have that before, but now I had that. And that, that lends depth and texture to the narrative. Um, anytime Kobe talked about his mom and dad and his close relationship with them, Instead of just being able to cite sources that reference that, now I have Kobe's own thoughts, um, which were made all the more kind of poignant and ironic for the fact that his relationship with his parents really fractured before his death. Um, so it, it, it took some time and it took some extra work to kind of work those insights in, but they were well worth it. Do you know why uh, Jeremy and Kobe never wrote that book? Because it seems like it would have been a, it would have sold. Yeah, it was just bad timing. I think more than anything, they struggled to find a publisher in part because I think the only reason that Kobe was famous at that time was because he was making the jump, right? Like there was no guarantee as he's entering the NBA with the Lakers that he's going to become a great player. I mean, he was famous in that sense and people knew him from, you know, being a, high, a great high school player and taking Brandy to the prom and the press conference where he says, I'm going to take my talent to the NBA. But there was a lot of skepticism back in the mid 90s about what Kobe was doing. And so the idea of that book selling, I think that was greeted with some skepticism, too. And plus, once Kobe is in the NBA, it becomes harder for Jeremy to continue doing the interviews. Right. He can't he doesn't have access to them all the time the way he did his senior year and the summer after his senior year at Lower Marriott. And I'm assuming because of uh, the, the sexual assault allegations that came up, and I can't remember how far Kobe was into his career at that point in time, I think that it was early enough to where that probably would have just put a kibosh on anything, too, I would imagine. 
Well, the, the allegations and charges came in late 2003, early 2004. And by then, I think the project, you know, they both had kind of put it to bed. You know, Kobe had won a couple championships, three championships with the Lakers by that time. Um, you know, so I think the, the project was gone before then. But, you know, e even still, I think your point still holds that, you know, Kobe was ascending and, and finishing this book with Jeremy just wasn't a high priority to him anymore. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the the allegations uh, against Kobe, and and you mentioned them um, in in the beginning of the book, but then don't ever really get to them. Um, I'm assuming because right, this is really his uh, the the storyline is in a lot of ways ending uh, uh, at the end of high school. Is is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, I'm dealing with an as a part of his life that doesn't include those allegations and charges. Having said that. I was very cognizant throughout the reporting and the writing of the book that I didn't want to whitewash anything about Kobe on the one hand, but on the other hand, I didn't want to be ham handed or have to shoehorn discussion of those charges and that black mark on his career and life into the narrative as well. And I was very fortunate early on in the, in the research process that I came across an anecdote that allowed me to kind of obliquely reference those charges and what's to come later without having to be overt about it. And um, I, I see we're on a you know Zoom call here. I see you shaking your head. And, and I'll just say it for listeners. Um, as a senior year, as a senior uh, at Lower Marion, Kobe at one point tried to walk out of a sexual harassment seminar um, that the school was conducting. He said, I don't need this. And he tried to get up and walk out. And his guidance counselor told him, no, Kobe, you need this. Sit back down. And I felt this sounds crazy. And it's the kind of thing that only another writer, or particularly a nonfiction writer, could appreciate. But I felt very fortunate to get that anecdote because it allowed me to just kind of put the subject on the table and let the reader digest it for him or herself. I didn't have to preach about it. I didn't have to bring it up in places where it didn't seem appropriate given that I was covering the early part of his life. Um, and it allowed me to address it later on when, for instance, I was contrasting him and Michael Jordan and their narratives as athletes and figures in our culture. Uh, obviously, uh, the tapes were incredibly helpful, but by that point in time, you had done a lot of interviews uh, with, with uh, people. How many people did you talk to? And uh, what was that like? I, I'm thinking, what was that like in the midst of the pandemic? But as I'm looking at the timeline, that might have been pre-pandemic when you were actually doing the interviews or no? No, I didn't get started on the book until March or April of 2020. So um, what I did was, I mean, it sounds terrible to say, but the pandemic in some ways was great because uh, nobody could run from me. I couldn't go anywhere, but nobody else could either. So on the one hand, it hampered me in that I couldn't go to Italy to research his life there. Uh, there's a big turning point in uh, his senior season that takes place in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina at a beach ball classic basketball tournament down in Myrtle Beach. I couldn't go to Myrtle Beach um, because of the pandemic, but I was able to sit here in my office, make phone calls, track people down that way. I was able to uh, meet outside during the spring and summer of 2020 with Greg Downer, um, you know, Kobe's coach. We would sit on his back deck and talk for hours about Kobe. I was able to meet other people in person as long as they were willing to. And, you know, sports were canceled, too, for a long time. So my job at the Philadelphia Inquirer as a sports columnist suddenly wasn't demanding me to go on the road with the Sixers in the playoffs or with the Flyers in the playoffs or 
you know, covering March Madness or anything like that. So um, it opened some things up. And I ended up talking to more than 100 people. I spent hours at the Lower Marion Historical Society. As I said earlier, I went to libraries, masked up and paging through old newspaper clippings. Um, and I was able to really kind of throw myself into the research of those aspects of his life. And of course, digitally now, you go to newspapers.com, mm -hmm. you know, you find databases and archives and all these different publications. Um, it's amazing how much you can get done just kind of from the sanctity of your own home. Yeah, I was just telling students in one of my reporting classes about newspapers.com uh, the other day because it is, it's, an, it's insane, the amount of stuff that you can look up, uh, you know, from around the world. Yeah, and I'd be remiss too if I didn't mention that um, one of uh, Lower Marion's coaches, an assistant coach to Greg Danner named Mike Egan, mm -hmm. when I reached out to talk to him, he said, come on over. And it turned out I had never met him before and we've since become really good friends. He is a connoisseur of journalism and sports writing. And when I got to his home, he greeted me with a giant box full of coaching documents, scouting reports that he had kept from Kobe's senior year and newspaper clippings that weren't available online mm -hmm. from like the weekly newspapers in and around suburban Philadelphia, stuff that I never would have found that, you know, it was just a treasure trove um, in addition to those tapes that Jeremy had given me. So, you know, I got a lot of help from a lot of great people in reporting and researching this project. Yeah. I, you know, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, interviewing more than a hundred people, um, uh, happening upon that box of all those documents and those tapes how do you organize it all? <laughs> so as you're writing, um, you're able to find the stuff that you're thinking about. I, I, I think I asked Chris this exact same, Chris Jones, this exact same question uh, on the last episode of the podcast uh, about the, the book that he just produced. How, how, how do you organize it and keep it accessible so you're able to find the stuff you're looking for? I have a, to my right here in my office, I have a table and I have a gigantic mountain of uh, file folders that I used to organize my research. And I also relied a lot on the structure of the outline I came up with when I produced the book proposal. You know, I knew how many chapters they were gonna be. Um, I knew my beginning and I knew my end. The beginning, the first chapter is the helicopter crash and Kobe's death through the prism of the Lower Marion community, through the people who knew him back when he was young. The ending of the book, the last chapter, I won't spoil it for people, but it is, it does involve an aircraft landing successfully. And I did that on purpose. Um, I wanted those two anecdotes and scenes to bookend the, the narrative. Um, and then within that, those parameters, I had structured and laid the book out. Uh, this, you know, chapter two is going to be about this. Chapter three is going to be about this. And so any piece of material that I went through I would file it in one of those folders or in a, you know, a document, a, a, a you know, Google Drive or something like that um, and kept it organized that way. That's, that's kind of, in some ways, I don't think of writing a long piece, you know, a, a long narrative piece or a book uh, as much as like sitting down and letting things come to me as I do, I'm, I'm building something, right? I have no aptitude at all for doing any kind of work around my house. I can't repair anything. I can't build anything with my hands. All my aptitude for building comes in my writing. When I get a great quote, for instance, if I'm writing a column for the Inquirer, if I get a great quote from an athlete or a coach or somebody, that's literally the first thing I will put in the document. 
so that I have, like, I know I've got to write 850 words and here is 89 of them already. I've, I've already started building. And psychologically that helps me write the rest of the piece. And the same process worked well for me uh, in writing the book. Oh, here's a really good anecdote. I know that's going in chapter six. So that by the time I'd finished chapters one through five, I already had a whole bunch of research in the document or the file that I had created for chapter six. And psychologically, that allowed me to kind of propel myself to keep going with the writing and the work. I started laughing uh, a, a few seconds ago uh, because you said uh, when you mentioned you can't build anything around the house. Uh, my favorite thing, uh, my favorite thing uh, to tell uh, friends and my wife, especially my wife, is like, look, I can't. The only thing I can build is sentences. <laughs> That's it. I am so stealing that, Matt. I am so stealing that because it's 100 percent true. I have great friends in our neighborhood and they are total DIY guys like can do anything around the house and I have no skill at it at all and really no desire to have any skill other than like my own ego. <laughs> but when it comes to, to building sentences and paragraphs and columns and stories and books that I can do. Did you have a lot of access uh, to Joe and Pam, uh, Kobe's parents uh, for this, for this project? I had no access to Joe and Pam. Um, at the start of the process, I wrote them a letter and sent them samples of my writing um, and said, look, I'm going to do this book. Um, I would love for you to talk with me. I would completely understand if you declined, um, but I'm going to write the book one way or another. Uh, I never heard back from them directly. I did hear through intermediaries, um, one member of the family, a couple of close family friends who told me, you know, Joe and Pam and Kobe's sisters, Sharia and Shea were aware that I was doing the book, but, you know, they weren't going to talk to me. Um, the irony is I met Joe back in 1995, 96. I was an undergraduate at LaSalle University at the time that Joe was the assistant men's basketball coach there. I lived through all the scuttlebutt that maybe Kobe Bryant was going to come to LaSalle to play college basketball for his dad. Um, I even referenced that in the letter I sent to Joe and Pam, um, but I never heard from them. And I just hope, as I wrote in the, the afterward of the book, I hope reading the book I hope I got the story right. I hope that it was accurate and fair and honest. But I also hope that given what they've been through, that the book brings them at least a little bit of joy, you know, to read about Kobe at that time in his life. Yeah, I'd love to know um, uh, how how much were, did you use any of that experience from when you were an undergrad at LaSalle uh, and, and Joe Bryant was a coach there? Um, then your experience in newspaper, even all the way up through the columns that you wrote, um, uh, after the, the helicopter crash, how much of that were you able to use when you were putting, uh, when you were writing this book, when you were building this book? <laughs> yeah, I was, I, I used a fair amount of it. Um, there, there are parts of the book that appeared in columns that I had written after Kobe's death and columns I'd written before his death. Um, in terms of the LaSalle experience, what it did was it gave me another narrative thread to kind of carry through the book. I didn't want to just stick with Kobe and Kobe alone. I wanted to show in some respects uh, him as kind of the sun and how he affected the other planets in his orbit. So there's a good bit on uh, Duke's recruitment of him, you know, and the context there for why Mike Krzyzewski wanted Kobe. Uh, there's Kobe's decision to go to the NBA and Sonny Vaccaro's role in that with Adidas and, and, you know, what happened at the NBA draft in 1996 so that Kobe ended up with the Lakers. 
And the LaSalle experience, such as it was, was another narrative thread. I wanted to show how Kobe and his thought process and decision-making had this kind of profound effect on this one university and its basketball program, because uh, I knew what was happening at that time. Uh, it was kind of a unique situation where LaSalle is this little known university, had a great basketball tradition, had fallen on hard times. Kobe was perceived to be a potential savior for the program. And I think he quite literally, up until a certain point, kind of held the fate of Speedy Morris, the LaSalle men's basketball coach, in his hands. If Kobe had chosen to go there, Speedy might still be the coach there for all we know. Um, but he didn't. And, you know, I wanted to show how that affected other people. So um, it, it had a, a pretty big impact. I'm not in the book in any regard. It's not a first person narrative, but it did that experience and that knowledge did help me inform the narrative. You use uh, 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 you use italics often uh, in the book when there when there seems to be dialogue, uh, but other times there are actually direct quotation marks, and I'd love to know um, how those decisions were made. Like what what's italics? What's in within direct quotation marks? Uh, can you can you break that down? Sure. Well, any place uh, any piece of research in which there was a quote, you know, whether it was a newspaper article. Um, whether it was somebody telling me that this is what they said, um, that ended up in quotes. If it was heard secondhand, or if I was, uh, I wanted to kind of take on the persona, so to speak, of the person who, who I knew without a doubt what they were thinking, that ended up in italics. Um, so the tapes were, you know, a goldmine in this regard. I have Kobe on these tapes telling me what he's thinking. So if I have that, I felt free enough to, to be able to use those in italics. Um, if I had a newspaper article where Kobe is quoted, I'm going to use that quote. If I had a coach, a former coach of Kobe saying, you know, Kobe said this and I said this, you know, I, I would try to get it verified as best I could before I put the Kobe part of that in quotes. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's a tricky process. Uh, you know, it's something that any nonfiction writer goes through. But I felt very, very secure in in taking on those kinds of uh, point of view changes because of the research that I had done um, and because I had it down cold in those regards. I wasn't making anything up. I wasn't guessing. There was no guessing in terms of what somebody said or thought. I had it. I had what they said. I had what they thought. And I felt free to kind of use it in those regards. We're going to take a short break. In one minute, I'll be back with more from Mike Sielski. He's the author of The Rise, Kobe Bryant, and the Pursuit of Immortality. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism and Sports Media Programs at Fairfield University. Digital journalism is designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to succeed in today's quickly changing media world. Students take courses in everything from big data storytelling to podcasting to narrative journalism and more. Sports media is a new major that prepares students to work anywhere sports-related content is produced. Students take courses in journalism and broadcast communication. They can also take courses in public relations, film, and more. To learn more about the digital journalism and sports media programs, 
visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm talking with Mike Sielski, the author of The Rise, Kobe Bryant, and the Pursuit of Immortality. He's also a sports columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, this uh, was not your first book. Is that's correct? Is am I right? It's my third. Yes, <laughs> your third, third book. book. Um, uh, so, uh, given that you've been through the process uh, of writing books before, what was it? How was this one uh, different or similar? Um, well, my second, the, the first one I did, I, I co-authored with Pat Williams, who used to be the general manager of the 76ers, was a founder and executive for a long time with the Orlando Magic, and now writes books, kind of inspirational books all the time, uh, collaborates with writers on them. So the one that he and I collaborated on was called How to Be Like Jackie Robinson. And it was all about Jackie's life and how he had these amazing qualities and how a person could display those qualities in their life too. And basically the process for that was Pat would do all the research and mail me all this, you know, books and newspaper articles and magazine articles about Jackie Robinson. And I would organize it into chapters and write the book. And I did that when I was, gosh, about 30. And I did it. I enjoyed the process and I'm happy with the product, but I did it just to write a book. I wanted to do that. The second book I did is called Fading Echoes. And it came out in 2009. And it's a nonfiction narrative about two guys who grew up in the same small town, the one that I live in now, Doylestown, Pennsylvania, Bucks County, just outside Philadelphia. And they were on opposite sides of a really heated high school football rivalry in the town. And then they each went on and served in Iraq. One of them became a Marine the other became an army ranger, and one of them was killed in action in the war. And it's kind of, you know, how their lives intersected and, you know, the role that sports played in turning them into the kind of guys who were willing to fight and die for their country. And that book really helped inform my process for the, for the rise, for the Kobe book. Because as much as I love Fading Echoes and as proud of as I am of that book, I spent a lot of time on the football end of things and the play-by-play of these games in the senior season, because I thought it would be dramatic. And looking back, if I could change one thing about that book, I would have cut some of that play-by-play um, because I think it would have opened the book up to a wider audience who didn't care as much about football and just wanted to get invested in the lives of these two young men. And so that I was very cognizant of that during the process of writing The Rise. There's not as much basketball play-by-play. There's plenty of basketball, but I really wanted to home in on just particular important games and moments and not get bogged down in, you know, an insidery look at the entire senior season of Kobe Bryant and the Lower Marion Aces. I was much more concerned about pace in the narrative in this book. And so I'm really glad I did Fading Echoes because I think it's a terrific book and everybody should buy it (laughs) in addition to buying The Rise. But I felt like it really informed and helped me write The Rise because it, it made pacing and narrative speed much more of an important factor to me in writing the book. You mentioned uh, that you were at LaSalle uh, as an undergrad. Did you know at that point in time that you would uh, that you were going to go into journalism and, and eventually write books? Uh, I wasn't sure about writing books, but I did. it did persuade me and convince me that I wanted to go into sports writing. Um, when I started college, I just knew I wanted to some, do something sports media related. I wasn't sure what. And then I started writing for and very quickly became um, sports editor for the student newspaper. And I found that writing really, really, you know, 
uh, inspired me. Um, I had a, there was a, an anecdote I tell often my sophomore year, I was covering the women's basketball team at LaSalle and they ha I had a number of friends who were on the team, uh, girls who lived in the same dorm as I did. Uh, and they had a big win against Notre Dame when Notre Dame was nationally ranked. And I was there covering the game. And I thought, you know, I want to treat my writing of this story for the student paper with the same gravity and importance that I treat the papers I write for my English classes or my history classes. And I did. And I got a lot of positive feedback about that story and it was invigorating. And I liked the process. I liked what's the old Dorothy Parker line. I, I hate writing. I love having written. And I really liked the having written part. And so I started buying the best American sports writing every single year. Um, I remember the first time I bought that anthology and I know you're friends with Glenn Stout and um, you know, that became a touchstone to me over the next two decades of my life. Basically, I would buy the book every year, see how the, the writers who appeared in that book structured their stories and how they did what they did. And I just kind of took off from there. It's uh, I, I think we might have been the exact same people as undergrads because <laughs> I was I was going to be a sports writer uh, all the way. And and it never happened. Right. I ended up going into news instead because that's the job that was open in the area that I was in. And that's just where I stuck around and and uh, but still found time to go cover high school football games on the weekends and, and stuff like that because it was so much fun. And now here I am for the podcast talking to people who write books about sports. And and we actually started a sports media major here at Fairfield University that I was a part of. So I feel like I'm getting my my old uh, love <laughs> second handedly here. So. No, I mean, it's, I think what you do is great. I, like I said, I, I listen to the podcast often, um, you know, and I, I think, you know, both of us would say this, we're very, very fortunate to be able to get to do what we do in the way we get to do it. Um, I feel like there are fewer and fewer of people like us who appreciate the, this kind of writing, whether it's in book form, whether it's in long form journalism form, uh, things like that. I mean, I, I grew up even at LaSalle and throughout my time in the business I really wanted to be the sports columnist at the Philadelphia Inquirer, the job I have now. It was always my dream job. My mentor was a gentleman named Bill Lyon, who held the job for close to 40 years. Um, we developed a relationship, professional and personal relationship, and um, I, I, can't, I can never repay what he did for me. But I'm finding more and more, as much as I love writing the columns and weighing in on the Eagles or the Sixers or whatever – the, the long form storytelling is really what gives me joy in this job. I love the digging. I love the storytelling, um, you know, and, and I think it's a, it's a rare and precious thing that we get to do what we do. I'm, I'm guessing that uh, you probably have a column either coming up or already out about <laughs> some Philadelphia sports right now. Is that correct? Yeah. In fact, yesterday, um, you know, we're, we're, we're recording this the day after the NBA trade deadline. So I was in Camden all day yesterday at the 76ers headquarters um, you know, waiting for the news about the James Harden, Ben Simmons trade to come down. And after it did, um, I ended up writing a column about Doc Rivers and the pressure that's on him now to make this, you know, James Harden, Joel Embiid marriage work. Um, the thing about Philadelphia, Matt, if you know anything about it, you know, sports matter here in a way they do in few other cities in this country. And so the whole town, the whole region is kind of a buzz over the Sixers and the possibilities of what might happen with that team now that they've got Harden and Embiid together. Well, I, I have to tell you, uh, I'm an Ohio boy, so I'm a Cavs fan, and I'm really hoping this doesn't put the Sixers over the Cavs. So, <laughs> <laughs> You know what? I love, I love stuff like that. I love, for instance, I love reading about a city like Cleveland or a city like Buffalo 
or I, I used to love reading about a city like Boston before they started, you know, the Patriots and the Bruins and the Celtics and the Red Sox started winning all the time because it's cities like that, that give guys like us jobs, you know, the people there sports is such a part of the community thread there. It's, it's, it's so rare to find things nowadays that really unite entire communities. Um, and, and sports is one of those things for better or for worse. And so, um, I, I really appreciate that and, and, and love that about certain parts of this country, you know, and, and, uh, I'm blessed to be able to work in the Philadelphia market because no matter what I write, I know people are going to read it and care about it and weigh in on it. And that's very, that's very rewarding. Well, Mike, uh, your book, the rise Kobe Bryant and the pursuit of immortality. It's been out for a couple of weeks. I highly recommend, uh, the people, uh, buy the book and read it. It's, it's really, really well done. And I think gives some insight that maybe nobody's, nobody's really had before on who Kobe Bryant was. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Matt, thank you so much. Please keep doing what you do. Um, there are people out here who, uh, who really appreciate it. That was Mike Sealski. He's the author of The Rise, Kobe Bryant and the Pursuit of Immortality. The book was published by St. Martin's Press in January. Sealski is also a columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. As usual, I've linked to everything we talk about on the website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, the podcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the Integrated Media Labs at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the digital journalism and sports media programs, as well as the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.